Okay, well, it's uh, the subject, uh, the, the subject that uh, I originally proposed for this was on the Reformation, and Gil said no. Uh, somebody else is talking about the Reformation this morning, and, and they are over there, so I had to change my topic. But I, I, I changed it um, in light of some of, I guess, my own research and my own work. Uh, yeah, go ahead and check. That'd be great. Uh, my own work that I've been doing, and also just in light of the fact we're living in an election year, and uh, the subject of politics is at the forefront of uh, a lot of people's conversation. So the, the subject is uh, Christian citizenship. The idea of what it means to be a Christian and a citizen. It's a two-part series. We'll start today with some basic biblical theology, and then next week try to fill in some the punchline, the uh, the what, so the what the so what question. You know, what does it mean in light of in light of that? And that, that's the framework. That, that's the outline, the basic outline of what of what we're doing. If you pay attention to Christianity in the United States, even at a cursory level, uh, if, you, if you listen, uh, thumb through the radio in the morning, or if you follow different, uh, perhaps, Christian websites here and there, which is always entertaining. Um, but if you, you, you notice that there is a proliferation of material talking about uh, the way Christianity intersects with political culture or just culture in general. And it goes under a variety of headings, it, and it, it's presented in a variety of ways. Uh, oftentimes it's, it's, it's couched in the language of, of worldview, uh, the idea that there is a, a specific worldview that, that Christians can appeal to. And in a sense, there is in an important sense there is in that Christianity tells us something about human nature and human destiny and God's purposes. So there is this what we might call archetypal worldview, this, this overarching theme that Christians can constantly appeal to for meaning. And we'll talk more about that especially next week. But in that sense we we, we, can, we find that language perhaps helpful. But in another sense, it has, uh, there's some ambiguity around that language. There's difficulty in this kind of language. And it especially becomes difficult when the, the narrative structure of worldview theology, the overarching sort of themes, tries to get in the mud, so to speak, with activity i.e., how does, that, how does this idea of being a Christian translate into just day-to-day -day living in uh, a plural society, uh, in, a, in a society that has differences, in a society that has real economic uh, contingencies attached to it? Um, that's where it tends to get messier, and the, and the volume tends to go up on the conversation if you do flip through the radio or you do uh, read some literature that's out there. Um, uh, on, on the on the internet, quite quite a bit actually. So there's a flourishing of this, and it it's not exactly clear what it is or 
uh, how it translates. And I think that's important, and it's an important ambiguity that needs to be addressed by the church. It's time to start asking hard questions about this kind of language and whether or not it is uh, tied to any particular gospel imperatives. In other words, how are we reading the Bible and how are, we, how are we understanding ourselves in light of this? What is the burden that is to be assumed as a citizen? As a citizen, perhaps, of two kingdoms, as I, as I titled this. So, uh, worldview theology is one venue for this. You, will, uh, you also hear it just in certain um, generic political discourse. You know, if you believe these things, you vote this way. If you believe these things, how can you possibly stand this person? If you believe these things, you, you, have, you should have certain uh, defined opinions about um, this particular issue, whether it, you know, whether it be a cultural issue, an educational issue. And, it, and it's difficult, and it can even be intimidating <laughs> when you start listening to this. It can be intimidating and overwhelming because... Some of us are just trying to survive and we're not sure exactly how we're supposed to have these opinions and, and it can be over, overwhelming and confusing to us. Just to give you an example uh, of the degree to which uh, this, uh, this is just a sample I, I threw together. I actually did this a few weeks ago. Uh, if you enter the term Christian worldview, for example, Google will yield 3,400,000 results. If you enter the term Thomas Cramner, you will get 480,000 results. If you enter the term Sin Out of Dort, not expecting anybody to jump up and say, I remember that one. But it, an important one that uh, helped define Reformational theology, Protestant theology, you'll get 193,000 tags. And if, if you enter the term Monarchian modalism, <laughs> which, has, which has to do with the Trinity, and with the Trinity, you get 37,600 hits. Uh, it's pretty staggering, the, the difference, and it might tell us something in terms of how our, our language of theology and our biblical constructions of, uh, shape and how we read the Bible shape how we use this, these concepts to talk about citizenship or cultural engagement or living between the times, as I put it. So what, what gives? Why do we, why this struggle? Why, why do we perhaps feel this tension? Why do we sense that there's so much activity around this kind of conversation? Why is this even in the public milieu? Is it a Southern thing? Is it an American thing? Probably both. Uh, is, it, is it complicated and related to religious disestablishment and uh, the idea that we can make choices democratically about where we go? Yes, uh, very much so. I'm, I'm sure all those streams flow into this. I think something else helps us make sense of this, and that is we haven't taken measure, and perhaps because of the where we are as Americans and having democratic possibilities, we haven't taken measure of the means by which the kingdom of God becomes available to us and what the kingdom of God actually signifies, what it actually means for people that live in history and are bound by history. And that often in the, the rhetoric, in the cacophony, the collision of do this, don't do this, think this way, have, you know, believe these things, and it will translate smoothly, we see that it doesn't. We see that it doesn't translate 
smoothly, and even sometimes it can be jolting the, de- the degree of aggression to which people will suggest that by doing these things I am acting Christianly, and perhaps you're not. This should be a burden to us, and it should be worth addressing. Are we, are we allowing ourselves, and are we following the means appointed by Christ in the New Testament for an imperative of living between the times? I think it's a question we should gut check constantly. As somebody who studies history, I, whatever that means, I, I'm pretty convinced we need to gut check it constantly. We struggle. We struggle as dual citizens. We struggle with a dual citizenship where we have to live under the burdens of an earthly order, but also under the promises of a heavenly order. And often we try to find spiritual significance in activities where, by and large, the Bible's silent, dead silent, or the Bible has called us to trust in what's already been delivered. So there's e- one of the tensions we also live with is silence, but also the, the, the problem of trusting, which is not easy, even with people we can see every day. Maybe most especially with people we see every day. As dual citizens, we live both in this kingdom, the kingdoms of this world, but we also have the hope and the promise of the kingdom of God, and the question is, how do they intersect here? I want to, I want to suggest that the kingdom of God does not come, it is not known, through cultural transformation, politics, or education, the field I work in. Rather, the kingdom of God is found in the preaching and hearing of the word of God, the sacraments, and repentance and faith. And that means it could be possibly pretty boring to think about the kingdom of God unless you put yourself in an eternal perspective first, unless you truly evaluate how limited we are with the physical means that we have. To put it simply, this intersection, this tension, where it's played out, I think most dramatically, is where we tend to become the most habituated, where we tend to become the most satisfied, and we also tend to routinize it. I think this tension's played out in the special mission of the church in the world. To understand what it means to be a citizen of two kingdoms, we have to prioritize what we mean by the church. And when we talk about the church and what it means to go to church, to be a part of church. To understand the church and to ask ourselves what the church is, is to push ourselves into an interpretive question. It's to push ourselves into something beyond just activity, but to actual reflection on how we read scripture and how we understand the relationship particularly between Israel and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's the starting point for understanding our citizenship, particularly our heavenly citizenship, and even more particularly, the kingdom of God. We have to understand the church first. The church cannot be understood apart from the Old Testament 
and the promises of the Old Testament. And it can't be understood apart from a redemptive historical framework. A redemptive historical framework. Not just simply a historical framework, but a redemptive historical framework. The church falls into... It doesn't simply fall. It is the center of God's active purpose in the world. And as a member of the church, as somebody who partakes in repentant faith, the sacrament of the hearing of the word, that routinization, that habituation is actually the very intersection of the tension of what it means to live between two worlds. Because it is here that the drama of salvation is held out to us consistently, week in and week out. Not in education, law, politics, etc. Those theaters matter next week, I promise. They matter a lot. But the true intersection, the true intersection of understanding human nature and purpose is what we do in the way we read Scripture and then enact that reading of Scripture in ourselves, pass it to our children, our loved ones, etc. And the hope that it anticipates a redemptive historical framework. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm, I'm going to say more about that in just a minute and hopefully point to some type of uh, a way of approaching Scripture and Christianity that, that illuminates this redemptive historical framework, that tells us something about it. Okay? But let me say, do a little more digging here about this tension. The church exists for supernatural reasons, and that's not language we're very comfortable with in the modern world. It has, it has funny shades to it, especially if you have children or if you're familiar with fantasy literature like Harry Potter or if you're just aware of the degree to which we live in a technologically sophisticated and scientific world. This, the word supernatural is, is difficult for moderns uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's everywhere. If you go into a bookstore and go to an, uh, a New Age section, um, I think we compete easily with ancient Greece or Rome when it comes to the varieties of religious experience we market and that are sellable. So at the, but at, so at the same time, it, 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 we, we live with this modern technologically driven, scientifically oriented world where the supernatural is relegated to fantasy or we see the supernatural be expounded in everything from um, daytime television to, um, uh, you know, somebody uh, standing next to us at a, at a school event just telling us, you know, God really spoke to me. You, you know, it's, 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 it's where is this? What does this mean exactly? But before we get too cautious about it, we have to take a step back and realize the church is supernatural. It's a supernatural foundation. Its purposes are beyond nature. Its purposes, put another way, are not limited to just nature. It points to eternity. It points to something more than just what nature can point to or tell us about ourselves. Although, what nature does tell us is critically important. We'll see. <laughs> But we have to, if we're going to accept this tension of citizenship, if we're going to talk about this tension of citizenship, this dual nature of living between the times, of standing in as, as a, having a, a, a visa, so to speak, that allows us to 
interact between these two worlds of, of the natural and the supernatural, we have to recover and appreciate the supernatural reasons for the church in relation to human purpose and destiny. If we deny this, if we fail to look at this, if we fail to examine the church carefully enough, we perhaps, and I think it is happening around us, we make, we make a difficult move. We, we expose the gospel to the possibility of becoming ancillary to our ideological commitments. The way we understand, for example, I don't know, free market capitalism the social contract, the purpose of public education, etc., can come in a very subtle way and in a very real way to dominate, to creep in, to manipulate the primacy of place that's given to the nature and destiny of the soul as it works itself out through living in the church between the times. In other words, how we understand theology, how we read scripture, how we participate in what we did this morning, become ancillary, dependent upon secondary to broader ideological commitments that do matter, that do matter, but cannot be the driving uh, catalyst, cannot be the engine that pushes the purposes of the Christian in the world. Because ultimately, they will subsume the supernatural character of what the church is called to do. We are and live in the vicissitudes of history. Everybody before us has as well. History and physicalness put us in tension. We have to make decisions that really aren't clear, like brushing our teeth or flossing or plumbing or cutting the grass. Just keep going. And we don't always have a clear message or revealed way of going about these things. I, I would even urge we don't have a clear way, not just always, but almost never do we have a revealed way of a surety of how to go about these things. So the gospel imperative comes to us. The gospel imperative of repentance and faith comes to us in history with the exigencies of decision-making, of physical being, of political and economic realities that we really were born into. And the gospel meets us there first as people who aren't told how or when to brush their teeth by divine writ. We live as historical creatures in space and time, but the message of the New Testament is that the soul continues beyond space and time. The soul, and the body for that matter, according to Christian teaching, have a permanence of being that defies historical circumstance. That's attention. The gospel message, the message of the apostles, the, the apostolic witness, implores us to mind our soul tend the garden of the soul first. Seek that which is permanent and cultivate that which is eternal in the midst of a world that is impermanent and bound by time. That's attention. We're told to take care of that which we can't see. 
but yet we know to cultivate it, to direct it, to submit, to repent. And yet, we still have to get up and go to work. Some of us shave, some of us you know, bathe or whatever. You know, we, we have to do these things to keep moving along. And then we have to go to other things like vote and make a decision about whether or not we're going to have the car fixed and that type of stuff or what type of taxes we do or don't want to pay, etc. And yet the soul is the primacy of the church. The soul and the cultivation of the soul towards its right end is why the church exists. It's why it was founded. Mind your soul. Seek that which is permanent. Cultivate that which is eternal. At the center of this, this physicality and this spirituality, stands the message of redemption, the possibility of redemption, the crucifixion, the, the, crucifixion, the resurrection, and the way it is transmitted through space and time, through culture, is the church. This is the historical medium by which God has deigned the soul be cultivated. Still, we can get the idealistic picture of this, but the church exists in all kinds of cultural situations, historical arrangements, political systems. Just pick up a few books from late antiquity or the Middle Ages or the early modern period and you begin to see just how uh, scary and different this, these worlds are and yet there's the church in the midst of it. So what gives? How do the supernatural and the natural hold together through the church? I'll return us back to redemptive history. How the history of redemption breaks into this order and reorders human history to its proper ends, to its proper direction. Redemptive history has redefined human history. It has. But it has not yet allowed us to escape human history. <laughs> it's promised that we will. It's promised that it will unfold accordingly. And as an aside, this is precisely the promise that Marxism tried to take in the 19th century in very materialist terms. It has a message of hope attached to it. That's an aside. But Christianity has this message of hope, that you, but you're not yet allowed to escape the political, the economic, the social, the cultural, and physical realities that are required for living as historical beings. The work of Christ and the establishment of the church at the very center of our understanding of the tension with which we must live. Okay, so what does all this mean in terms of interpretation? Where do you go with this? Well, I want to suggest, and this is why I have this, is I just want to suggest that there are ways in which we can depend on our forefathers in the faith and we can draw from the interpretive pattern they've given us that we uh, uh, that give us a model, that give us a, a way of understanding our dual citizenship uh, and, and allow us a kind of paradigm to draw from. Redemptive history. Christ is anticipated in the Old Covenant. 
the first, the first thing I would point out is that we know as Christians that Christ is anticipated in the Old Covenant. So there's, there's Christ anticipated. And this takes different forms. It takes the form of the law. It takes the form of the promises of the nation of Israel. And it takes the form of the prophets. But here we learn, we are pedagogically schooled in Israel and the law and the divine character. King and kingdom here, king and kingdom as concepts, are typological they represent something that anticipate a true king and a permanent kingdom. That's why these people mess up, as Heidi reminded us over and over again, all the time. They, 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 they fail. They're dirty. When the, when the Hellenized Romans and Greeks uh, would, would read Scripture, they often just tossed it aside, the Old Testament book, the Pentateuch, because it was, there's nothing noble there in their mind. There was nothing virtuous. It was just a bunch of dirty people. And they run around and they, they basically have sex with their handmaidens and they, uh, and they steal from other people and they murder. Well, this is interesting, but why should I pursue this? I mean, I want something noble and virtuous. But it's typological. It's the unfolding of the covenants that are pointing us to, they point to, right? They, they, they point to a true king is in the future. A true king, a true kingdom. A permanent, fixed reality. Christ anticipated. OT, Old Testament. The next... The, the next part of this redemptive historical process is Christ physically present. Christ present. And, and I think it's important to say physically. Christ physically present. Okay? What does this mean? It means that the king and the kingdom are with us, they are in history. They, the true king and the true kingdom have broken into space and time. And it's here that we hear, uh, we have the, the, um, the, the witness of the kingdom, the gospel message, the teaching, the parables, the miracles, the signs of the kingdom over and over again are designed to show you what the, the reordering of the broken creation, the anticipation of the new creation, the horizon and possibility that your redemption has come near. Here the king and the kingdom are present with us. King and kingdom are present. But we also meet the king and and the kingdom in a, in a very strange way. It defies our expectations. We meet the suffering servant, the friend of the despised, the whores, the tax collectors. Um, the, the way to the kingdom is the way of the cross. The triumph is in humiliation. It's an inversion of, of how we understand power. It's an, inver it's an inversion of history and what historical power has looked like. And it's also taking place, of course, in the heart of the Roman world. 
which is perhaps the most, besides our own period, the most sophisticated legal system ever developed. Next, next, we are given the hope and the promise that Christ is spiritually present with us. Christ is spiritually present, which is, this is where we live right now. This is where we intersect with the church. We don't live in the apostolic period, or, but we have the apostolic witness. We still have the typology of the character of God and the demands of God. But we now have the fulfillment of the law and the hope of of the salvation that the sacrifice, the atonement gives us in the spiritual presence of Christ through the church. It is Christ who appointed the apostles and the history-bound church. These places really existed as a witness to human salvation from the reign of sin and death. King and kingdom are now proclaimed. We've seen him. We know him. He will return. So here, the means of this proclamation are appointed by the king himself. This is how I wish you to herald my arrival. It's the church. That's how my arrival will be heralded. That is the supernatural institution that will be founded, that I will found, that will always point to me in anticipation yet again. So here, the uh, king and kingdom, live, we, we live, we, we, we proclaim. I'm sorry, I don't use PowerPoint. King and kingdom proclaimed. We point to the proclamation. Finally, and this is related, we anticipate the king. The church anticipates the king. That's what we do every Sunday. That's what we just did if you just took the sacrifice of the Eucharist and, and the symbolism of what it means. This is what our great reformers wrestled with. Is what does this mean? We are anticipating the hope of forgiveness and the resurrection. So not simply the way of the cross, but also the hope of the resurrection redefines how we understand our citizenship. We know that there is a king that is anticipated. We long for Christ to return, and in the interim, which is key, the, all, the, the tension, right, we live in a community that's constituted by grace. We anticipate the return of the king, and we wait. What does this mean? It means that how we're able to proclaim Christ and what we're allowed is delimited by Christ himself. A pastor, a Christian, can go no more than what Christ himself has said, this is what I want you to say. We cannot bind conscience outside of what Christ has bound. If we do, we create an untenable burden that is not only confusing, but can be debilitating. I found these words from um, uh, 
Michael Horton, who teaches at Westminster Seminary, California. And it's a great quote if you'll just give me a minute to read it. It's the Lord's Day again, just in time. It's been a long week of glorifying and enjoying God out in the world, confessing sins, receiving God's forgiveness for having fallen short. Now it's time to be a recipient of God's public renewal of his vows to us. It's time to come and unburden our load and find Christ in Christ true rest for our souls. But alas, the pastor has chosen another hobby horse this week. He's a man with a plan, and he imagines that Christ's sheep are his army of volunteers. So here's a weary mom, a frustrated dad, disappointed relationship at work, an elderly woman who wonders why God still leaves her on earth to suffer debilitating pains. There's a teenager with doubts about himself and his faith, even about God's existence. And the pastor sets aside the assignment he has been given by his master in order to call these folks to transform their world, or at minimum their neighborhood. Not even if that church were full of architects, bankers, redevelopment officers, urban planners, economists, and a mayor or two could it achieve the goal and the burden this pastor has just placed upon his people. We are in between the times right now. Not only are secular kingdoms still secular, Jesus knew that, <laughs> we still participate in them. We are simultaneously justified and sinful. We are not ourselves transformed enough or even remotely close to glory to agree upon what a transformed world should look like in all of its details. What we do have is the promise of redemption in the church. We're enacting it every week and it gives us the markers and the delimitations by which we understand our citizenship. I've got to wrap up to anticipate next week and I hope you'll come back because I do have the, the sort of the second part of this, what, how then shall we live? <laughs> but I do want to point to a few passages. I do want to point to a few passages. In Matthew 4, when the Satan takes Christ to a high peak, what does he present him with? Remember? Well, several things. But one of them is the kingdoms of this world. He said, I will give them to you if you will worship me. Christ says, no. And the devil leaves him. Christ actually says, get away from me. Because there's another way the kingdom's going to be brought in. And the devil leaves. We have Christ admonishing us about taxes to Caesar as well in Matthew 22. We have the transformation of the law and the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom ethic that it implies. We'll, get, we'll talk about that as well. We have the powerful scene of Jesus before Pilate in John 18 where Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Christ says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate says? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, says Pilate. 
Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. We have then the imperatives of Paul that you can, you, you can look at in uh, Romans chapter 8, Romans 13, 1 Timothy, where we're very clearly called to a peaceful submission. Cautious, yes, but peaceful. And then, if you have time today, look at 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. I'll start there next week. But this is where Peter admonishes us that we live as aliens and exiles. We're foreigners. It's a, it's a theology of the pilgrim that's introduced here. And we assume the status of the pilgrim when we assume the cross and the meaning of the cross and the resurrection. We no longer have the luxury of triumph in the way the dominion and powers of this world work. Live as foreigners, as exiles. Abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that they, they accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So, I stopped there for this week. Two minutes for questions. Clarifications? Matt? This is obviously going to anticipate next week, but it, it seems yep. to me that if you can derive any kind of ethical principles from the scripture, and I say that cautiously, yep. um, could we still say that our politics at their root, and you gave Marxism as an example, at, at their root make certain claims from a materialist standpoint or in terms of human nature that could maybe not lead us by default to accept them, but could lead us, kind of like the old Droopy cartoon where everybody else steps back and you've got one or, one or two remaining, where you say, as a Christian, I can't accept an interpretation of history that shows us, the, the, the old Whig interpretation of history, yeah. that yeah. shows us progressively getting better. Right. And, and I could accept a, a political, for lack of a better word, political ideology that is much more minimalist in its idea that we're going to get better and we're all going to build a better world together in a over not not in a organic kind of you and me sense but in a in a state driven kind of way. I mean is that I, I, I don't I, I, say that yeah. With yeah yeah I, I don't I don't think scripture allows it. Okay. I don't think scripture allows it. I, I do think and you've anticipated exactly where there is this thing called human nature, and there's this thing called natural law. There, is, there are these, these avenues that we participate in via creation. That, that, and that's where I would take the argument. I would say that we can participate in creation because creation is good. And, uh, but is there a warranted state that can be worked toward? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think there is the good, to use a platonic term. There is a good, and that, that good can have communal aspects, and Christians have to wrestle with that good in light of this dual citizenship. But I think the starting point is the surrender of the gospel and the function of the church. That's the starting point for understanding this tension. We're out of time. So, thank you.